composer, arranger, educator, author, film, and music producer. Dr. Eugene Morrow embraces all of these activities with a passion a man half his age would envy. Between teaching courses in media and culture at Baruch College, composing and arranging in multiple styles of music, Margot managed to make multiple trips to China to research his latest book, Jazz in China, From Dance Hall Music to Individual Freedom of Expression. Eugene Margot and I met in New York City to discuss how the popularity and promotion of jazz in China has evolved over the years and how its increased popularity today reflects the culture, politics, and economics of the country. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Although Eugene Marlowe comes from a long line of highly accomplished professional musicians, he wasn't encouraged to study music himself, a fact that is still somewhat mysterious to him. Well, my father was a classically trained musician, went to the Guildhall School of Music uh, in uh, London, and his father was a cellist. And uh, his father came from a family of 11 string players <laughs> in uh, <laughs> Well, it depends what time of the century is either Russia or the Ukraine. And I, I, I have no idea why my father decided to take me to this jazz jamboree unless he suspected that I might have a feeling for it. And I heard uh, it was at least two hours of nothing but big bands and trios and quartets. And one of the, uh, the ensembles was the Ted Heath Orchestra. And I don't remember what it sounded like, but it clearly... Uh, resonated with me. I, um, that was like, wow, wow, that's, that's interesting stuff. Then, a couple of years later, we got on the Queen Elizabeth t- uh, uh, 1 to come across uh, the transatlantic arrive in New York. And a couple of years later was the Peter Gunn series with the Henry Mancini track and score, and I used to beg my parents to, because I think the show came on at 11, uh, 9 o'clock at night, can I please, I, I don't care about the story, just let me listen to the music, okay? And a couple of years later, I was lucky enough to become a, a drama student at the High School of Performing Arts, the original High School of Performing Arts. You, you know, were fortunate, fame, boy. Okay? And I'm uh, so envious. It was, for, uh, it was such a wonderful experience for four years. If they had given me a bed and a closet, <laughs> I, I would have... I would, have, I would have stayed there for four years. <laughs> I would have never gone home. Oh. Uh, but one of my buddies in my homeroom class was uh, Charlie Smalls. I don't mm. know if you know that name. I do. But he, and uh, he wrote the, uh, the score for The Wiz. So I was really surrounded by this stuff, uh, this jazz stuff. I really I felt it. Um, it was years later that I, that I realized that I could also uh, write classical. But I wrote my first jazz piece when I was 14. Oh. It's called Nightcap, and uh, it, it's full of ninth, uh, major ninth chords, which I had no clue at the time. It would be years later that I knew that I had written a couple of ninth chords in a C minor. You just I, did it because it sounded good. You weren't thinking, sounded, I want to do it. It just sounded oh, good. Oh, isn't that interesting? And it, you know, it, it swung. It was, a, it was a blues. I had no idea. That those were jazz notes or any. It just sounded right to my ear. And uh, I didn't get to write it down until a couple of decades later. Really? Yeah, so you, oh, to, that's in, interesting. In, uh, in my f- Late 30s, early 40s. I didn't know how to write music down at all. 
So I started uh, with uh, Harold Danko, whom I met through Dr. Billy Taylor at a jazz songwriting workshop at ASCAP. And how old were you then when you were taking this? Um, I had to be in my late, my late 30s, uh, mid-30s, something so like that. So you didn't learn to notate until your late 30s? Uh, just beginning to, that's right. But you were reading music? I uh, could hardly read music. Okay, it now you've be, completely If somebody blown. asked me for a gig, it would be, uh, you know, what music do you want me to play? Come back in a couple of weeks. That's okay? fascinating for somebody with your background, though. I mean, that's really interesting. It's, it's not unusual to, to not be able to read. There's musicians who play by ear. I, I'm an okay reader and grew up with a, a couple years of piano lessons. But I didn't have a parent who was a an accomplished classical musician and then other relatives why didn't you why didn't they have you take lessons i'm curious my father discouraged me discouraged you yeah, from taking want, lessons yeah, he, i actually started to compose and i can remember the experience in our flat in london in kensington sitting down at the piano uh, my hands my small hands at the piano making something up and my father just shut me down didn't want me to get into it because the life of a musician, a professional musician, is so hard? Um, I'm not sure. So you never talked to him about it? I, I never talked to him about it. My, and he died young. He died of a heart attack at age 63. Oh, I'm sorry. My mother, though, tried to teach me classical music, and she made a fatal mistake with me. Um, she tried to teach me. Uh, we started uh, the, mo- the first movement from the Moonlight Sonata, Beethoven's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Moonlight Sonata. And she taught it to me by rote. Rather than this note is there, this is what this note sounds like, and to teach me how to sight read, as opposed to Andre Previn's father, who said, sight read, sight read, sight read, sight read. And uh, if I had started at a younger age, I probably would be a much better player. Mm. And uh, my own assessment is that I'm a much better composer and arranger than I am a player, but I know enough to be somewhat dangerous. <laughs> I love you saying it, though, because I think for our listeners who are, are thinking that, that maybe it isn't worth the time putting in to learn how to read or to practice, I'm always encouraging of my younger listeners that there's a reason we get those skills. It's fascinating on this show because I'm so fortunate to get to talk to so many people about their journey to playing. I've had so many people, myself included, who had great ears, like you, who fooled their teachers by, they just say, and I did it. <laughs> oh, just play it for me so I can get a feel of it. I did that when I was 10. She'd play it. Well, then I didn't have yeah. to read. You know, I read the notes, but I didn't have to read the time because I heard how it was sounding. And she should have been, no, I'm not playing it for you. <laughs> read it. Read the notes. I decided to go back to school. I already had a PhD in media studies and an MBA. And you went back to school to learn how to read well? I went back to school to do two degrees in composition when I was 52. God bless you, because that's did, tough. I did all the theory. I had a great theory teacher. And uh, I, I'm still working off the stuff that, that he taught me. This is at uh, Hunter College. And uh, then I went right into a master's uh, uh, program, and I actually started doing some work on, on a doctoral level. But I knew in my early 50s that if I didn't go back to school and take my composing really seriously, mm. I 
when that moment came that I was going to fall over and, you know, that was the end, mm. I didn't want to have that feeling of, gee, I wish I, you know, the coulda, woulda, shoulda. Oh, yeah. And I'm very glad I went back. But it's it, very it, it, hard, it, though, isn't it? I mean, because I've taken theory later. And same thing. And I, um, I'd i had people that say, well, you know more than you think you do because I'm obviously doing it. Okay, but at the same time, that's a lot different than sitting down and, and being taught theory and making yourself sit there and listen to it. Then if you learned it, and I know you know and have studied with Maria Schneider, and I know talking to her about her education, it was all integrated. So it was fun. She had little games when they would talk about um, – uh, the scales and intervals, and it was fun. And it, it wasn't this thing hanging over, and now you're learning theory. <laughs> you know, it's just know a, it's a different thing. And you brought, speaking of composition, you brought this fabulous arrangement of yours of Maria with Bobby Sanabria from this CD that he's done. And I, your arrangement of this is just incredible. Talk about this. Well, I've worked with Bobby Sanabria for uh, probably 12 years mm. now. Um, when I was curating the Melton's and Jazz Perspectives concert series at Baruch, uh, he was one of my early invitees. And at the end of the concert, I gave him my first CD, which I had just produced uh, the year before calls me up the next day and said, come up, listen to my Manhattan School of Music Afro-Cuban Jazz Orchestra. I think you'll find it interesting. And uh, that was, I think I'd done 17 charts, uh, either originals or arrangements for them. And then this West Side Story Reimagined uh, project uh, came up. It's incredible. And um, he called me up and he said, uh, Gene, I'd like you to do a couple of arrangements. And I said, I, I, I can do one. And he gave me a couple of choices. I chose Maria. Uh, from West Side Story, because it was easily translatable from a 4-4 into a West African 6-8 bembe. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I can hear it in my head why you would think that. Yeah. And I said to him, that's it. I called him up. I'm doing Maria. I'll see you in a couple months. You know, <laughs> I'll have the, the charge.
Bobby Sanabria and his multiverse big band on an arrangement of Maria, written by my guest, composer-arranger Eugene Marlowe. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Tell me about Billy Taylor. I met him uh, at a jazz uh, songwriting workshop at, uh, at ASCAP. Um, I think this is in the early uh, 70s. And I already knew of him and uh, knew his uh, his uh, of his playing and uh, and his other work. But really, what really impressed me, there were th- I think thirty one or thirty two students uh, in this six week workshop, ranging in age uh, from I think eighteen or nineteen up to I think there was a woman there who was in her sixties. Wow! And uh, I mean, you've been an educator. I've been an educator. And, you know, it's very easy to try to you know one size fits all. What really impressed me about uh, Billy's pedagogical skills is that he treated everybody individually as, you know, as to where they were mm. in terms of their development. And, that's really uh, nice. Yeah, and he brought in all sorts of people, including Harold Danko. That's how I, I got to meet uh, Harold Danko and Janet Lawson, uh, who's actually worked with me. Uh, she's a singer and a, and a lyricist. Um, it was a, That was a... That was the beginning of the rebuilding of uh, my confidence in uh, music because uh, after I came back from California, after being in the Air Force during the Vietnam uh, uh, era, uh, I moved in next door to Bill Evans. (laughs) You know, you're making my day because now I know somebody who lived downstairs from Art Tatum and somebody who lived next door to Bill Evans. I mean, just the proximity had to make you feel better. You know, getting could you hear him play? Uh, Yes, Uh, his. uh, I had a studio apartment. He had a a one bedroom, and his living room was uh, right next door to, to the wall of my. Uh, essentially my bedroom and I could hear him play and I would put my ear literally <laughs> to the wall I'd love to go to sleep you know listening to Bill Evans next door that's amazing did you know him did you get to meet him yes uh, I got to uh, meet him and uh, his uh, common law wife uh, mm-hmm. Elaine uh, Evans mm-hmm. and um, they had uh, two Siamese cats and when uh, she passed uh, I inherited those cats and one of them actually lived to the age of 22. That's old for a yeah, cat. Yeah, for a cat, yes. That, well, that shows you what living with Bill Evans will do. All that good music kept that cat alive <laughs> and then came to you. Well, he, he was, she was very protective uh, of him. I mean, if I'd go, I, I used to play chess with her. And uh, I would, you know, I'd go over and, you know, I'd say, how's Bill, 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 And she said, he's sleeping. You know, he was, she really took, she really took good, very mm, good care mm-hmm. of him. But he was a big, tall dude. And huge hands. I got to meet him right before he died. Tommy Flanagan introduced me. It was a oh, great wow. thrill of my life. So I know those hands. It was. This, I love that the old guys, and I had it happen a number of times, they'd say, your hand has to touch so-and-so's hand. Like they were <laughs> passing that on. So somehow if you could see the getting mystical here, the energy going back and forth between Bill Evans' hand and my hand or something. But, yeah, he was a big guy. Yeah. And I've always wondered how he played with such finesse, mm. with those huge hands. Such a sensitive soul. But he once said to me, as I, you know, I said, and how did you get you know, to here, uh, where he was? And uh, he would say, I just worked harder than everybody else. I mean, there's no, in music, in the arts, there's no shortcuts. Yeah. There are no shortcuts. You either put in the work to get the skills 
to you know, get yourself to a higher level. And it's a never-ending process, as, as you yeah. very well know. Yeah. It's a never-ending process. You could have five lives and still you know, not be uh, completely uh, fulfilled. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest is composer-educator Eugene Marlowe. Now, you have a passion for travel, and your great book, Jazz in China, I'm fascinated by it, by the fact that it wasn't just the people that were playing jazz in China, but the history of it, the cultural significance of it, the development of it in relation to the culture. Talk about that, because that was really interesting, and I think that was part of what inspired you to write this, not just I want to see what's happening with jazz, but this the form of jazz and how we know it and what it represents and what it represents in China. Well, little history here. Um, 
this journey started in 2000. I was invited to the Shanghai University School of Film and Television to give a series of lectures on media uh, in the United States. Uh, as in, you know, newspapers, magazines, radio, television, uh, and then, of course, uh, the Internet. And in the middle of this trip, and this is in Shanghai, I asked very innocently, because I have a background in jazz, I said, I said is there any jazz here in Shanghai? And my uh, host said, of course. And the next day, we all piled into a couple of cabs, went downtown to the Bund, to the Peace Hotel, which I know you know uh, about as well. And uh, we walk into this, uh, like, little cafe bar and order some uh, very expensive, uh, extremely small sandwiches. (laughs) The price was big and the food was small. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Fortunately, I wasn't paying for it. Uh, My hosts were paying for it as their guests. And about 20 minutes later, these six uh, older guys... Uh, come onto the state, I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is going to be great. I'm going to hear these indigenous jazz musicians. They're going to probably play some Dixieland or some, you know, the early jazz. I'm going to be, this is going to be wonderful. And three minutes later, they start in and they're playing uh, pop standards like Begin the Begin (laughs) or In the Mood. Uh, Not very well. And I'm, I listened to about 40 minutes of this, uh, and they played each tune, maybe two, three minutes. Their ability to improvise, particularly drama, was the drama was uh, not especially well, uh, good. Uh, during the intermission, I asked my host if I could uh, talk to the leader of the band, and um, that was. This is really the beginning of, of the genesis of, of the book. I'm, we meet outside, we sit down, we shake hands. He was very happy to see me. And uh, I very innocently, uh, having no background, uh, asked him, I said, what was it like playing jazz um, uh, during Mao's time? That conversation ended about five nanoseconds later. Oh, interesting. He did not want to talk about it. The conversation was like, done. Thank you very much. It was wonderful meeting you. I thought to myself, hmm, what just happened? Yeah. Yeah. I went back, listened to a second set. By that time, there had been uh, the, the dance floor uh, was full of uh, Germans and Brits and Aussies. They were all drunk. They're listening to the music. They thought it was great. <laughs> it can improve if you're drunk, you know. <laughs> That was your problem. I, I've tried that as a player. It doesn't, doesn't <laughs> well, work. Well, no, that right? definitely doesn't work. It doesn't work. <laughs> uh, um, uh. So when on the plane coming back, uh, it was a long journey, but 24 hours, I thought to myself, there's got to be more to this jazz uh, in Shanghai. I get back uh, to uh, Baruch College. I was teaching a summer course that, that year. And I go on the Internet, and I just said, jazz in China. Hundreds of articles came down. I printed out every one of them and started looking at this and says, wow, there's a whole story here. There was jazz in Shanghai primarily uh, in the 1920s and the 1930s, and then the Japanese invaded, and uh, then there was the, you know, the communist and the nationalist uh, civil war, the communists, and then Mao took over, and he killed jazz, and then, oh, wait a minute. Jazz came back in the early 80s in Shanghai. What's going on here? 
Yeah, it was fascinating. I mean, the book is fascinating how you put the whole history of it together. Well, it was really interesting. Uh, I knew then that I had to go back. Peace Hotel Jazz Band, recorded in Shanghai at the Peace Hotel. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Our show is made possible in part with generous support from Steinway and Sons, and from East Hampton Indoor Tennis, eight indoor and twenty outdoor courts in a quiet, beautiful park-like setting. Visit ehit.ws for more information. For a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can listen to podcasts of Jazz Inspired on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email us at infojazzinspired.com or visit us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Stride Queen. I'm talking with author composer Eugene Marlowe about his book Jazz in China, which is a history of the development of jazz in China and the cultural and historic significance of its influence there. Took two years to develop a roster of all of the primary jazz musicians in Beijing and in Shanghai, and where all of the jazz clubs. We actually went to the、uh, Chinese、uh, embassy here because I had a map of Beijing and a map of Shanghai, and I had the names of the clubs and the streets. And I said, "Okay, you know, where is this club?" And they would, you know, mark it so that. I knew I could probably only do thirty days. I, when I had financing for thirty days, we did eighteen days in in Beijing and twelve days in Shanghai, and it was a magical trip. I have to tell you, other than the flying, it was a magical trip. I I went there with no budget for translators or interpreters, none, zip. Didn't make any difference where we were. Every time I needed a translator or an interpreter, someone would tap me on the shoulder and said, "I'll do it for you." So you found a lot of people who spoke English. They, they were right there. We were in one club, and I wanted to interview the manager of、uh, one of the、uh, the CD cafe.、Mm. And there was a young woman there, and she says, "I'll do it for you." 
translated a, a perfect Mandarin. Uh, the first guy that I interviewed, a guy named Matt Roberts, one of the greatest trombone players I've ever heard, intonation, fantastic, m better than 90% of the trombone players that I've ever heard in the United States. Great intonation, spot on. Studied at Stanford, studied Mandarin. He's, been the, he's got a, uh, a Chinese wife uh, now, lives in uh, Beijing. Perfect Mandarin. I was able to interview each one of the members of his band, and he would translate. Mm. Didn't make any difference. Uh, I have other magical stories like that, but uh, there was always a, an always an interpreter and very like helpful and perfectly willing. And all of the jazz musicians that we met um, were just delighted to have the attention because nobody was taking any interest in in, in them. Now they are because of what's going on in China. I mean, China is now the second most, uh, uh, biggest uh, economy in the world, and within a few years, they're going to surpass the United States. All of a sudden, uh, China is getting a lot of attention because it's going to become the biggest economy in the world. So talk about Whitey Smith. I love this track. This really puts us in the mood of that time, so talk <laughs> about it. Whitey Smith was one of the first white uh, European uh, jazz musicians uh, to go to China in 1922. He was invited there to uh, play in one of the leading dance halls uh, in uh, Shanghai. And he actually wrote uh, two books. Uh, the first book was called uh, I Didn't Make a Million. Um, he thought he was going to go to China. And make, and make a, a million, of, uh, yeah. Right. It, it wasn't, it wasn't going to happen for a variety of reasons. He ended up uh, in the Philippines uh, after the Japanese invaded and actually ended up in one of the internment camps uh, there. But there was, he was there for about two, three years. Lost a lot of weight, uh, but he was there with uh, his uh, wife. And uh, he died in Manila, mm -hmm. uh, I think, in the, in the 1970s. Um, but uh, his claim... And maybe his claim to fame is that he taught the Chinese how to uh, dance uh, to jazz and popular uh, music. It's quite a claim. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, he was a character, big t a big, tall guy and uh, a real character in uh, Shanghai. Uh, he was a drummer, uh, led a, a group. But you know, his style, he attempted to incorporate some uh, Chinese um, musical idioms into his music and... Uh, I mean, the, the track that I brought you has an elements of that mm. right at the beginning, and then it goes into the kind of popular sound that you would hear in New York City in the 1920s. <laughs> Thank you. 
dancing, sweetheart, with you. Then it's bright time in dear old Shanghai, with our lips all now so true. In my arms, dear, away from home, dear, we'll let the rest of the world go by. While the moon shines so brightly, we'll make love when it's nighttime in old Shanghai. Whitey Smith on a 1928 recording of Nighttime in Old Shanghai. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm talking with author Eugene Marlowe about his book, Jazz in China. Something that really struck me throughout the book, you bring us into the atmosphere of the different times that you're talking about, which is really wonderful. And... As a jazz musician myself, and anybody who knows anything about this, we know how hard it is to make a living as a jazz musician and how hard it is to have a jazz club. All these things, the normal challenges, let's say, in America. On top of that in China, they have all of those challenges, but then they have a political system that can, on a whim, decide we're going to close your club because we're going to take over this spot or any number of things, or a new political system comes in, like the Great Leap Forward or the Cultural Revolution. When I know when I was in China, I was told that during the Cultural Revolution, there were only five songs that were allowed to be played. That, and they were all political. Yeah, only five songs. Right. That is such a mind-boggling thought. And I want our listeners to think about that, that you are told that you can only perform five different tunes so there's no Beyonce there's no Bill Evans there's no none of that and that's why I told you that we learned that tune uh, the sun is red and Mao's thought is clear as I say a real finger snapper and that was one of the tunes and it but it only had a few notes in it too the, you know didn't have it wasn't anything you could do with this and these people incredibly and you paint such a beautiful picture in this book of these people that persevere and keep trying to play a music that that isn't part of their culture, it's just because they love it, and have maybe have a jazz club that could be closed any minute. I just found that incredible. Well, China has, an, as well as larger Asia, uh, Asia uh, Asian countries, um, you can include several of, of them, in this kind of mindset has, uh, has a long history of adherence to a single authority, mm. whether it's uh, the uh, the emperor, or whether uh, it's the uh, the dictator or the single party uh, system, and you have to look at the history of jazz in China, sort of two parts. Before Mao, it's all music for dance hall, uh, dance hall. You know, um, the jazz age in China. It, it was definitely a thing that, that was happening. And it also, sounded like also fun. Of the hundreds of dance halls all over yeah. Shanghai, uh, some in Beijing and, and uh, some uh, scattered parts of, uh, of China. Mao com- comes in and essentially by 1953, he took over in 1949. In 1953, uh, he's essentially shut down uh, everything uh, even though there's one example of a saxophone player who actually played some jazz, but it was at a Mao Zedong party. Other than that, <laughs> no jazz, nothing. Okay, 
Good enough for Mao, but not for anyone That's, else. That is correct, Mundo. Um, after Mao dies in 1976 and Deng Xiaoping uh, takes over, by the late 1970s, early 1980s, the Chinese um, very smartly bring back Western music. And it's not just jazz, but also classical music. I mean, there's a wonderful uh, movie called From Mao to Mozart uh, with uh, Isaac Stern, which won Academy Award for Best Documentary, I think, in 1980. Um, I use a clip of that um, uh, in the documentary I'm producing that's based on the book. Um, they brought jazz back not because, oh, we love jazz. They brought jazz back because they knew that when they open up to the West, they're going to be business people coming from Europe and the United States and other parts of the world, Australia, New Zealand, so on. And they expect to hear their music, not our music. That's really smart. So... They're very astute, the, the Chinese. They're, not, they're no dummies over there. Uh, so they brought back jazz uh, to the Peace Hotel in, in 1980. That's how that started. Um, and they brought back Western classical music as well. But it was for economic reasons, for business reasons, not for cultural reasons. The subtitle of my book is From Dancehall Music to Individual Freedom of Expression. The individual freedom of expression, ironically, occurs after Mao uh, dies and the Chinese government starts to open up uh, to, to the West. It's a very ironic situation. There's more jazz going on in China today than ever before. And there's a young generation now, kids in their late teens, early 20s, playing jazz. Um, I mean, there are Joey Alexander's mm. aplenty. There's a guy named Abu, uh, a fantastic player. I was able to uh, interview him when he was 15 years old.
first jazz musicians to come back to the United uh, to come back to China uh, were black musicians in the early 1990s. Um, but the real onslaught in terms of jazz musicians going back to China occurs in the early 1990s. But it's not just jazz musicians from the United States; it's jazz musicians from all over from the all world. From all over, right, right. Very much Europe, but also some from uh, Southern Africa, Australia, and so on. So you've got a real mix. An international uh, mix of jazz musicians from all over the world mm. now traveling to China. And famous names, not so famous names, um, all uh, all over. So there's a huge expansion, and you can see it in the expansion of air travel too. I mean, they're all in parallel. Right. Is it? And of course, the internet is, uh, has been a big uh, big factor here in terms of expanding. Uh, what the Chinese are listening to. Never mind the stories of their, uh, uh, you know, shutting down certain websites. Let, let me tell you what my translator said to me when I was there in 2000. He said, uh, "I said, you know, what's the political situation here?" And he said, "This is it in a nutshell." He said, "Make as much money as you want, but leave the politics alone." And it's That's still sort of how Singapore that, is. It's still that way. Because you've got billionaires now uh, over in China, and and millionaires are growing a uh, uh, plenty, but leave the politics alone. Uh, at the end of my book, I try to make the following point: that jazz uh, is a very democratic form of music. It allows for a soloist to express himself or herself in an individual way with the support. Of the rest of the uh, the ensemble, it's, it's very much um, to a de- degree um, like our system uh, of government. But jazz still exists in this uh, essentially in this communist state. But the government encourages it. There have been jazz Chinese jazz musicians that have performed at International Jazz Day in Istanbul and in Paris with the complete support of the Chinese government. I think it's because jazz is a very sophisticated for, uh, genre uh, of music. It, it's not, uh, you know, three chords. Mm. It's not hip hop. It's not uh, misogynistic. It's uh, it, you really have to listen to what's going on, and you think that appeals to them. Yes, I think it appeals to an elite and, uh, a, and a growing middle class uh, there because now now they can afford it. You know, now they've got roofs over their head, they've got food to eat, they've got clothes. You know, there's a growing middle class there because of all the entrepreneurialism, and uh, they're beginning to listen to other kinds of music. They're also listening to their cultural music. Right, but, but the government isn't threatened by this democratic sense of They're much more threatened by rock and roll, which is more... More uh, obviously uh, uh, Which is more subversive. You know, in your face. Subversive, you know. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Because I know, and I told you this uh, before when we weren't on mic, that when I went in 92 for a State Department tour, they considered jazz too sexy and too subversive. So they told them. Now, the, our State Department wanted to send a group be, because it was the first tour of any since Tiananmen Square, and they thought cultural outreach would be good. But they said I was a folk singer, <laughs> even though at the time I didn't sing and I don't play folk music, although jazz kind of folk music. But that's what they said. They said, we'll get you there, and you can play your first concert, 
And if it goes well, and if one of the party bosses says he will be your sponsor in terms of she's under my protection, basically, then you can stay. But it was interesting because then, from a government standpoint, they saw jazz as too subversive. But you say now they don't. Now, that's a long no, time ago. That's 1992. Uh, jazz, uh, there are more jazz uh, education opportunities um, sprouting up in uh, Shang- uh, Shanghai and, and Beijing particularly and in some of the medium-sized uh, cities. And that's fascinating. Um, and there's improvisation. You were talking about some of their music having improvisational aspects to it. I think more to the point about your uh, gaining entree to China as a folk singer, a lot of uh, Chinese music is folk music. Right, so, so they, they related would, they with They would it? have understood that concept ah. uh, probably uh, very well. That was something that they could relate, they could bring they could relate to. Ah. Now, you brought me a track, which is fascinating, from a documentary, and it's Kong Hong Wei, am I saying that? That is correctly pronounced. Kong Hong Wei, right. Kong Hong Wei and Oscar Peterson. So talk about this because I was, I told you I listened to it. I didn't know exactly what it was and I thought, wait, that's Oscar? No, that's not Oscar. That's Oscar. Talk about it. It was fascinating juxtaposition. Kong Hong Wei, uh, we, uh, he was actually one of the early uh, interviews that we did in, in Beijing uh, in a club uh, there. And uh, when we interviewed him, he talked about uh, his, uh, what got him into jazz. And uh, he was actually a classically trained musician, so he had the chops. But then somebody introduced him to an Oscar Peterson tape. We're talking about the you know, uh, 80s now, uh, 90s. And he said, oh, this is interesting. And he started to listen more and more and more. Kong Hong Wei is China's first true virtuoso jazz pianist. Mm. So um, I have uh, about 10 or 15 minutes worth of, of him playing in this jazz club. And But when we were putting this uh, documentary together, which hopefully will be finished mid-next year, um, I said, mm, I wonder if there's something uh, by Oscar Peterson uh, that we could juxtapose with his playing. The plan is lined up uh, again for me, and I found a clip of him playing with Ray Brown. I think it's in uh, the leading jazz club uh, in London. Ronnie's? Uh, yeah, Ronnie, Ronnie, Scott, Scott. Ronnie Scott's. Um, and... Uh, Kong Hong Wei is jamming on C-Jam Blues, and Oscar Peterson is jamming on C-Jam Blues. So this is like three, four months ago. We put the two side by side, and would you believe that they're playing at the exact same tempo? I know. That's what I, I mean, thought. It wasn't I mean, the planets that, aligning. It's the time aligning. I mean, there's got to be about 40, 50 <laughs> years between the two performances. <laughs> so uh, in the clip, uh, there's, it's, uh, you can hear Kong Hong Wei act with a translator. Even though he he speaks in fairly good English, uh, and then you hear twelve bars of Oscar, and then you hear twelve bars of Kong Hong Wei, and then a twelve bars, and then twelve bars of uh, of uh, of him fantastic. playing. That's fantastic. And I mean, the audio quality is a, a little different, uh, clearly, uh, but uh, Kong Hong Wei is, is masterful. Listening to Kong Hong Wei is like listening to Canadian-born piano virtuoso Oscar Peterson. Kong Hong Wei is a master of the keyboard. 
I actually played the classic piano while I was in university. And uh, after uh, graduated from the university, I heard the Oscar Peterson's CD and I started to, to, to learn jazz actually by myself. book is, um, while it's... Your book, it, Jazz in China. The, the, the Jazz in China book, uh, published, by the way, the University Press of Mississippi, which uh, seems like the, those two things don't go together, but they've actually... But good pu- for them. Th- they've actually published several other jazz books. My book is not only about the jazz musicians and the evolution of jazz uh, in China, but my book is really uh, underneath is about economics. It's Absolutely. about world economics and world and world politics and technology and how technology spreads culture uh, around uh, around the uh, planet. Uh, that was somewhat of the surprise uh, to me as I sort of settled back and looked at this mound of, of material that uh, I had co- uh, collected. That's it's really jazz in China is really about economics. The reason that the Chinese government supports jazz as a sophisticated uh, uh, musical genre is is more about economics than it is uh, about we, we love the music. Talk about Shaja. This is a fascinating track. I love it. It's crazy. Well, With comp- all these different inf- influences I'm coming gonna in. Compare, uh, well, Kong Hong Wei, uh, I'm going to go back to Kong Hong Wei just uh, very briefly because I describe him in the book as the hot pianist. Xia Jia is the cool pianist. <laughs> okay? And he's one of the, at the time, he's one of the few uh, indigenous uh, jazz musicians who actually came to the United States to study. He studied at uh, Eastman. Uh, with one of my early teachers, Harold Danko. Oh. And, uh, and you can hear it uh, in his playing.
I'm so glad you took the time to do this. Thank you very oh, much. Thank you for inviting me. This has been a wonderful conversation. It's been fantastic. <laughs> and your beautiful book, Jazz in China, and they can all go to your website. They can, they can go to Amazon. They can go to any number of online booksellers. It's uh, there. Barnes & Noble has been advertising this uh, for a couple of months. And it's a fascinating read, and I think it's great for people that are interested in what's going on in the world, in China specifically, but how it relates to everything else beyond jazz, you know, sociologically, culturally, all of it. So thank you. It's great. Thank you very much. You've been listening to my conversation with composer, arranger, author, Eugene Marlowe. I hope you'll join me here next time when I talk with another celebrated creative person about how jazz has inspired their life and work. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineers are J.D. Allen and Curtis Heidoff. You can download podcasts of Jazz Inspired from iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Our opening music was Airmail Special, and the mid-break music is a smooth one from my CD, High on Fats and Other Stuff. The closing music is Old Fashioned Love from my CD trio. I'm on piano with Mike Hashem on sax and Chris Flory on guitar. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is made possible with generous support from our listeners and from Steinway and Sons and from Sag Harbor Florist. Visit sagharborflorist.net. For a schedule of upcoming programs, to sign up for our email newsletter, or to find out how you can personally support Jazz Inspired, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Stride Queen. Additional support is provided by Jazz Times Magazine, providing entertaining and provocative coverage of the jazz scene since 1970. On the web at jazztimes.com. Jazz Inspired is also sponsored in part by Page at 63 Main in Sag Harbor, New York, serving organic microgreens and vegetables grown on their own energy-efficient indoor and outdoor aquaponic farms. Better taste, happier planet. Visit Page at 63 Main at opentable.com. And special thanks to Henry and Gilda Block and to the Ken Colker Foundation. For more information, visit jazzinspired.com or judycarmichael.com. <laughs>